Welcome to Counter Stories, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group, Counter Stories producer, and VP of Programming at Ampers. Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and partner at the Dendros Group. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Dribble Indians and associate of Dendros Group. And we have a special guest joining us today as we continue our legislative wrap-up, and I'll have her introduce herself. Uh, so I'm Jamie Becker-Finn. I'm a state representative here in the Roseville area. Uh, represent Roseville, uh, most of Roseville, half of Shoreview, but I am Leech Lake Ojibwe descendant, grew up in the Cass Lake area up north, and I am the current uh, House Judiciary Finance Chair uh, in the legislature. Thank you for joining us. Today we're recording from Mako Coffee in Roseville, and it is also our first in-person recording in over a year at yeah. least. I think the last time minute, was when we I were think in Malax. Two years, because yeah. the last time we were live was up in Malax. That's yeah. right. So was, I'm happy to see all your faces in real life again. Unfortunately, Luz couldn't be with us, but I saw her face in real life a few months ago. So um, we, we last week we took a break from our legislative wrap up. Um, but this week we are back to talk about the public safety package slash gun control measures. Can you give us like kind of a brief introduction to what that is? Yeah, well, so this was the omnibus public safety and judiciary bill um, kind of to move things along more quickly in the legislature. Our, uh, our bills get combined. And so this is the bill that oversees uh, all of the funding and statutes related to our courts, our justice system, policing, um, as well as things like uh, gun control and gun violence, uh, you know, victim services, all those sort of things in the, the justice sphere um, are incorporated in this one omnibus bill. And I know one thing that we were particularly interested in was the the red flag law. I think that's some that that term itself um, is something that people have been talking a lot about. So, what does that mean, red flag law? Yeah. So the technically the language is it's an extreme risk protection order. So if people are familiar with like an order for protection in a domestic violence case, it sort of mirrors that process. Um, but in cases where we think somebody might be a danger because of the use of a gun, either a danger to the community or a danger to themselves. So uh, the way this language is set up is that uh, a county attorney, a sheriff, or a family member um, can petition a court, you know, give reasons why they're requesting this petition so that a person would be not allowed to have weapons, uh, to have firearms. So specifically, you know, you'd be asking them to turn in those firearms and they would be blocked from going and purchasing a firearm. So it kind of... Um, it's broad enough uh, to have a lot of different uses, you know, whether it's somebody who's been threatening to other people in a domestic violence situation, or if it's someone who maybe has been struggling with mental health issues and you want to make sure that they're protected personally as well. You know, it's funny that I'm, I'm glad to hear you break it down like that, because one of the uh, things that got spun around, especially in, in the area where I am with my parishioners, is uh, this notion that that this is just power to take and uh, but there's a court process involved. You have to go to petition a court just like you would if you're if somebody was 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 you know uh, as you said the, having mental health issues or or other concerns. We would raise the same concerns in that in that so there's, there's a process involved um, basically. And and so I, I I'm I'm glad to hear that piece uh, because it flies directly in the face of some of the things that have been bounded about 
um, at least in our community space. Right. You know, and I think some people are concerned, you know, oh, this is just a way for, you know, a court or, you know, the system to take guns away mm. from people. Mm. And so it, it's a process. Uh, it, you know, you have to petition, the facts have to be there. Um, and then there's a hearing. And so if there's a case to be made that this isn't appropriate to do, well, then there's due process there. So I think that was one of the things people kind of spun around was, you know, this is taking away my second amendment, right? Mm -hmm. Without due process. Well, it's, <laughs> there's, there's a whole process built right. in. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what we heard most. And being in the headspace that I am is like, you know, you, if somebody is a danger to themselves or their family, that they shouldn't be able to go in and get a gun so easily. And so this, that makes sense to me. Right. Well, and it's mirrored in other parts of our system. Right. So so we want to have one set of rules for all of us and have these these tropes go around. But then nobody says <laughs> the moment you go on base, the moment you you go into into government centers and spaces like there's there's no pushback for the same level of of detail and concern in in, in those spaces. But somehow that's going to change because we all have access to that level of safety and, and clarity. Um, and, and, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of tired because one of the things that, that happens often is that particularly in black community space, um, these narratives or these things that get pushed out kind of mirror with some of our valid concerns about how systems have treated us in the past and they mm -hmm. kind of marry together. Mm -hmm. And so you get this, this sense that somehow, um, you know, folks are, are led to believe that, that there is no process, that, that it's, it's all of these different things, um, when in actuality, it's it's the same rules as everybody else. We saw a similar thing when a whole lot of African Americans, in particular, just using that that uh, community's perspective, uh, uh, started joining the NRA, mm. and now all of a sudden, um, we don't see the same defense of their their experience, right, right. Um, but joining the same organization, um, just like all the multitude of hunters who do have uh, gun safety, who do have all this stuff, and I keep running into a whole lot of folks who practice really good gun safety and they have guns at home and they see nothing red. They, they see no red flags here. Mm -hmm. It's just common sense in that space. So who's no pushing that No one's going to come narrative? knock on your door right. and be like, you have to hand over your gun now. Somebody says that you're dangerous. Right. So I, I'm just commenting, you know, listening to your comment, uh, Anthony, did, when did the NRA ever <laughs> uphold those for sure okay i'm just saying you because know, your statement made it sound like they kind of stopped and um uh, i don't remember them ever ever having it standing in the first place. up you know especially <laughs> i mean and when we can when we uh pull up recent events like philander castillo mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. instance had a concealed carry was not reaching for his gun mm -hmm. where was the nra mm -hmm. to stand up and, and and talk about his rights remember how silent that was mm -hmm. when you hear crickets you know, there what other port there, there were other portions of that bill also, yeah. right? I mean, um, the other kind of common sense thing that it's that you know is common sense to me at least is um, that they that um, when you go now to gun shows mm. or whatever, um, you could just purchase a weapon and you didn't have to go through any of that background check that you do when you go to a gun dealer. Mm -hmm. And and I often, I never understood that. Right. Okay, so I mean, so you know, um, so now this measure, the, the bill puts um, 
folks now have to go through that, correct? Right. So we it's we expanded the background check bill so that there it's universal background checks now. So there's not sort of that loophole where if you you your friend knows a guy who knows a guy who's going to sell you a gun or if it's on um Craigslist or online or you know in a Facebook group or at a gun show that you have to go through the same background check process that the rest of us do when we buy a gun from like Joe's Sporting Goods. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm I'm one of the members of the DFL caucus who does own guns. I've grew up hunting and, um, you know, grew up around guns in northern Minnesota. And um, when you, I went to go buy a new hunting rifle last year, and it's really not that onerous of a process. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, maybe it, maybe it meant that I spent a little bit more money at Joe's in like the 10 minutes where I was waiting for my background check to come back. <laughs> um, so maybe it's good. It's good for small business. Um, but I think that again, like the most, most reasonable gun owners are used to this process and it's Mm -hmm. not that big of a deal. And the other thing I think is important to point out because it gets, um, all these things get muddied, uh, for political reasons, but, uh, the background check bill only applies to handguns. So it actually doesn't Mm. even apply to long guns and hunting rifles. So these people who are sort of spinning into, what do you Mm -hmm. mean? I can't just give my hunt, my grand, you know, my, I can't just give my gun to my grand. This doesn't even apply to that. And we also had exceptions if it's a parent to a child or Mm. a close family relationship that you can do this. So there's all kinds of exceptions in this bill as well for the reasonable things that many of us do. Um, It's just saying you shouldn't be able to walk into a gun show at literally anybody and just pay cash and walk away with a handgun um, without going through those processes. But you can still pick up an AR-15. No, it, it, it's hand, it's handguns and uh, Sam saws. It's, it's gets really technical, but it does, it does apply to, to assault to type, to assault type. But if you start using the word assault type, then people will start <laughs> like parsing with you those definitions, but it's all defined in statute. But, but and but that's why I I asked that because you use two terms rifles and long guns, so I was so what to me I'm thinking well when I heard the term long gun to me it meant rifle, but you use both terms so what is under the category of long gun so so it basically is it doesn't apply to a rifle or a shotgun that you would use for hunting okay. So all of the things sort of like blowing this into, oh, are you making it harder mm-hmm. for people to to hunt is like just uh, nonsense. Oh. So I'm <laughs> sure you guys heard the argument that AR-15s, we use those for hunting. I mean, that's the <laughs> argument. I'm serious. That's the argument I always heard. Really? Oh, yeah. The only times I've ever shot that weapon <laughs> was with folks who had it with them while they were hunting. Now, fully disagree that they brought it for the purposes of hunting. They brought it for the purposes of Making shooting point. while they were hunting. It's exactly. a very different thing and different exactly. purposes online. Exactly. And I can tell you right now, I was real uncomfortable uh, with their with their ability to have something like that because it was completely unnecessary. But um, I, I, I mean, we're playing the same thing, but that's where the the muddiness comes in there. And so then, you know, and, and I have folks in community who will tie... Um, who, who will who will be nervous about this because of what people have have these rumors of folks have put out there um but for the purposes of what the second amendment meant to um to the freedom of african americans where the second amendment was you know upheld their ability to protect themselves physically and so there's this again this this muddying of certain things and so you can get folks to arrive at opposition to something that makes sense like this especially targeting handguns which are the thing that um 
uh, has you be the most unsafe as it retains the gun. So that makes sense. Um, but then putting that together and now a community who is going to be benefited by something is now um, because of rumors and, and you know, twisting things around are in opposition to it. And we see that used throughout history to kind of divide. Yeah, but there's a and part of that, though, however, is there's a history. Mm. I mean, there there's a history. I mean, I grew up during the time um, um, with the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. Right. And they did nothing more than what you see all these kind of militia groups mm -hmm. where they arm themselves and call themselves patriots and they're protecting somebody's rights. I always questioned whose, mm -hmm. but the Black Panthers were did nothing more than that. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, we had gun legislation mm -hmm. passed, mm -hmm. restricting the ability to be able to carry those long rifles mm -hmm. and other uh, guns in the state of California by a Republican governor. Mm -hmm. The only time we had an immediate gun control legislation to address people carrying those kind of weapons was used against the black community. So there's a history there of, 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 you know, when when there's legislation, um, one really has to kind of from the from, from from our communities, really has to take a look to see, you know, where is this coming from? How is it going to impact us? Because that that was directed against a particular group of individuals that did impact the whole community, and so, you know, those those these laws kind of have impact uh, on both ways. I didn't grow up. On a, in a rural area on a reservation, but I spent a lot of time on a reservation. And guns are just a way of, of I mean, you know, so I'm 10, 11 years old. My uncles are taking me out to the to the junkyard mm -hmm. and taught me how to shot a, a, um, or how to shoot rifles and how to shoot um, shotguns. Now, you know, and so I learned um, uh, no one had pistols. I didn't. I don't remember seeing anyone with a pistol. It was a rifle, mm -hmm. or it was a shotgun, and it was for hunting mm -hmm. or traps. <laughs> yeah, that was well, it. or I mean, the reality is, when you live in rural Minnesota, there might be a rabid animal, mm -hmm. or they're like, and so I think that's important too, because one of the bills that didn't make it across the finish line this year was around safe storage, and they kind of mm -hmm. the other side sort of blew that up into you don't know what you're talking about, you don't know what it's like out here when it's literally me carrying it, and it's like I I know exactly what I'm. <laughs> talking about um when it when it comes to this issue and so i think um there are valid definitely valid reasons and i think these two bills in particular i think were narrow enough to actually address the harms that we're trying yes. to stop um and i think you know important that people like cedric frazier are carrying mm -hmm. this legislation you know people who come from the posse caucus and are doing this work as well um so that we do kind of have an eye out to make sure it doesn't shade into these areas where it's disproportionately impacting uh different communities in an unfair way there's one of the pieces of it um, that really intrigued me is the no-knock warrants, the limiting of the no-knock warrants, um, you know, especially given, of course, the high-profile pro um, killing that was that was here. But I actually um, was in the house 
when in a duplex on the east side, when the downstairs level, um, they did a no knock and and nobody came to check, you know, and and, and make sure that we were good. So there was no like Spencer oh. to make sure we were in, in, a, in a place. And so they raided this space with the folks downstairs. Um, and we had bullets coming through 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 the mm. floor. And it's mm. me, my 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 little sister, my mom and my stepfather. And nobody like there, there wasn't a check because everything just jumped in, jumped in so fast. And so, um, you know, that, that just, that I've experienced that before. And so when we had the high profile profile one here, I went right back to that mm-hmm. moment. Right. Versus, you know, uh, at a, a different time, it's happened twice where, where all of a sudden they get a knock on the door, um, at one o'clock in the morning. And it was, it was an, it was an officer just saying, stay in your house. This is happening two houses down, very mm. different neighborhood. Right. <laughs> right. Right. This is when I was a homeowner. This is when I had, you know, was in a better situation, you know, in a better, in, in quote unquote, better space. Right. And so there's a very huge difference in policing in one neighborhood versus the other yeah. in the same city. <laughs> yeah. That so, happened to an auntie of mine where we live, we live in multi-generational housing, mm-hmm. right? We're collective communities. And one person in this household was doing something he shouldn't have been doing, but there was a no-knock warrant bust into the house there were babies there was grandmas there were grandpas i mean the house was filled with like four different kids and their spouses and their kids all for this one kid who was living in the basement you know <laughs> and so it's it's traumatizing and I, i'm sorry that ha- that happened to you twice you know and so in the legislation it says limiting no knocks not an outright ban and so i'm curious about what what that conversation was like getting to there? What were some of the things that, as you, as you were kind of wrangling that? Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is just explaining to people, understanding what their rights already are mm-hmm. under the Fourth Amendment to unreasonable, you know, searches and seizures. And so it was a really nuanced uh, debate. And mm-hmm. I think it was actually, if you go back, it was, I think, one of a really good moment in a conference committee where there actually was dialogue mm-hmm. um, between members of the committee and, you know, law enforcement trying to help, like, we are trying to get to a place where we can agree on the same language and it can be, um, is protecting the people we want to protect so we don't have situations like yours and really getting at the the heart of it, which is if there isn't a good reason to do it, it's just mm. you default mm-hmm. to that. Because that's what we found out is that some departments just sort of were defaulting to oh. that. Um, whereas there were other departments who haven't been using no knock warrants at all because the reality is also it's not it's not just that it's unsafe if it's not enough to you that it's unsafe to community members it's also very uh unsafe it's a very dangerous practice for the officers themselves yeah. mm-hmm. um so that was another part of that was really um you know and talking to law enforcement officers who are like i've been doing this job for a long time and i don't need to do this the city of hmm. st paul hasn't mm-hmm. been doing it for years uh you, there are other methods if you're worried about losing evidence or whatever it is mm-hmm. there are other methods to ensure that and also we as policymakers in weighing things the safety of a child in a household is going to outweigh to me whether some drugs get flushed down a toilet. You know, it's ideally, yes, you're like holding people accountable when they're breaking the law. And also we know that it's dangerous. People have died. People, you know, continuing to be harmed by it. Then we got to do something. It was also really helpful that we had a, a former law enforcement officer 
uh, carrying the bill. Mm-hmm. So she knew it better than anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, she knew the parameters and how those things get carried out. And that was super helpful in finally getting that language passed. So as I was doing research for this show, um, one of the things that popped out was a lot of pushback, especially with the, the red flag law um, from rural communities saying, you know, the Second Amendment is king. And sheriffs in rural Minnesota is not going to enforce this. Like already declaring this type of stuff that that we're not going to enforce it. You know, I was at a, when, back when I was doing a written journalism, I was at a, I was sent to a gun show with another reporter and we were escorted out because we were asking questions. Like we weren't, we were just asking questions and they asked us what our names were. I was the only Asian person there, so I stuck out like a sore thumb. And then the guy I was with just so happened to be former St. Paul Mayor Coleman's brother. Hmm. So they heard Coleman and they said, you're not welcome. And so we were escorted out because they felt like we were going to do some bad story. And, then, and I, I kept telling them, I was like, you know, this makes you look worse by (laughs) escorting us out of a gun show. Maybe we're here to buy something. Like, we can't even ask questions, you know, because there was that loophole, and they didn't want to bring attention to the loophole. So how do you respond to people saying, well, that's fine for you guys in the cities, but in rural America, we're not going to enforce that? I mean, if you're a sheriff, it's literally your one and only job to enforce the law. (laughs) It is not your job to choose what the law is. That's what lawmakers do. Mm -hmm. Um, so <laughs> I, I would think that their county attorneys and uh, <laughs> the courts would have uh, some thoughts about mm-hmm. that. And I think that just speaks to how toxic some of this has become, where it behooves them to try to make it seem like there's this stark difference between people who live in rural communities and people who live in, you know, they always kind of throw everybody, they always just talk about the Twin Cities. And it's like, well, we're in the suburbs, actually. Like half the Posse Caucus mm-hmm. represents the suburbs. <laughs> and also all of our tribal communities are also rural communities. Right. So I always feel like I need to point that part mm-hmm. out as well, mm-hmm. is that you say rural and you think you have one mm-hmm. thing in mind. And I say rural and I that is inclusive of all of our tribal communities mm-hmm. as well. And so, um, you know, they really push back again on the safe storage bill. And, you know, that was part of the strategy. And and uh, to make it seem unreasonable so that folks wouldn't support it. Um, despite that, that language is actually mirrors what the NRA tells you you should do for safe storage. We mm-hmm. were just putting it in statute. And then all of a sudden we're being unreasonable. I don't understand. You know, my dad had, I knew my, my dad's a hunter. So mm-hmm. we always knew my dad had rifles. We didn't even realize that my dad had a handgun until it was stolen. Until we were like, no, some broker, someone broke into the house, stole a bunch of jewelry and the gun. That's when we knew, like we didn't even know because he hid it so well from us eight kids who were often left home alone at a young age. You know, we didn't know it existed. So that that's how it should be, right? To to have a safe storage. I mean, I can, there's like what? stories of like a TikToker trying to take a, a picture or a video with a gun that went off by accident. There's all the, these stories that we hear all the time of, you know, a six-year-old brother accidentally shoots his sister because they found the gun in the nightstand and they were playing with it. I mean, we've lost children in the last six months. Yeah. Yeah. To to this issue. And yeah. I think, you know, we'll continue to talk about this issue and continue to bring it up because the reality is the people most harmed by it are kids and um, people who in that moment are struggling with mental illness 
And it's <laughs> it's not a hard thing to do. And the reality is most gun owners are already doing those practices because that's how we've all been trained to do and it. That's, that's the part that gets me every single time with this. My granddad was the same way. He locked... Uh, th that and he had good locks on on the the who he called the good stuff, right? <laughs> That's what he used. And he's a West Virginia, he's a West Virginia guy, right? So, so but the rifles was right there, and I knew how to how to, how to clean it, dress it, get it ready, make sure it was safe. I'll never forget um, being in the backyard when we were visiting, and and him standing at the at the end, and he raised uh, some animals and stuff like that. And then he he heard predator am animals around, and he was able to say, Anthony. Run in there and get he because he numbered them. He said get number one and number four, and number one and number four were two different kind of rifles. And I will ne I'll never forget him getting it, slinging it around the shoulder, and then turning around and telling me like, "Hey, you're coming with me this time. Do you remember all the steps to do?" Because he, you know, he was military trained, so he 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 had me laid out right mm -hmm. so that there was no possible way that I could accidentally shoot him. That was our rule. He was like, "What's the what's rule number one, number two? Don't accidentally shoot me, and don't accidentally <laughs> shoot you." Um, and so. There, so we had that, you know, it just, it would have boggled his mind to think of this as anything other than what what should be yeah. done. So uh, another sideways <laughs> example of that is um, um, I was up at my res at Mille Lacs <clears throat> and I had just uh, brought in a, a load of walleye from uh, mm -hmm. netting, right? So a lot of the a lot of the men are standing around you because there's a central place that we bring and have to weigh our fish, and so you know they they were talking about hunting, right? Because it was that time of season mm. to go to go uh, deer hunting. Well, I've never gone deer hunting, right? So I'm listening to them talk, and then I kind of jump in and I kind of mention that I've never gone deer hunting. Would they be willing to take me, right? So, because that's how you learn. Yeah. Now, what was amusing about that is that the conversation got silent and no one said anything. <laughs> In fact, some kind of stepped back a little bit. So, you know, so the message I, because silence speaks loudly in our community. So, I, what I got from that experience was that there was a lot that I didn't know, a lot I, I needed to learn about hunting for the very re thing that you're talking about, mm -hmm. about being safe, making sure I'm not shooting anyone else, you know, and since I had no experience uh, doing that, none of them felt like taking any of that on, because that's usually mm -hmm. something that your uncles do. Mm -hmm. So my uncles did take me on and show me how to, how to shoot guns, but we never did go hunting, so I didn't have the opportunity to learn that. Um, and then, but when I was younger, I had, I did have my dad's older brother <laughs> take me, supposedly take me pheasant hunting. Mm -hmm. And then I realized when I got older, I was the dog. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he had me out front. <laughs> and I had my slingshot. I'm thinking I'm hunting. Uh, you know, I'm, oh, yeah, you know. And then all of a sudden a, a bird would take off and, you know. And you'd be the retriever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can I can absolutely relate. Uh, my, my grandfather called that, go get it. And we would play go get it all the time and go pow go get it go get it <laughs> so don you're closer to my husband's age uh, and he grew up in duluth but he told me that in school they had to take gun safety class like mm -hmm. it was just one of the regular classes that they took that was 
sponsored, like an NRA member would come in and they would do gun safety. So, I so don't it's know. actually it's actually a DNR um, mm. oh, okay. class. Program. So in order to get your uh, your license, your deer license, any of your mm-hmm. hunting licenses, you need to have completed firearm safety training. Yeah. So mm-hmm. where I so I grew up in Cass Lake, you know, really small town, and it was when everybody turned twelve. The year everybody was twelve, mm-hmm. everybody every Wednesday night for like you know, six, eight weeks, we would go and like a DNR conservation officer would teach you gun training. Um, I remember even then, um, you know, I'm, I'm 40. uh, I was the only girl in the class, um, (laughs) but it was like all the dads, like, Right. sitting in back while we're mm-hmm. we're learning and they they go through all these safety things and you need to pass that in order to get your license. Um fast forward to now, even in rural areas it's really hard to get into those classes. Mm. And so um like my 12-year-old hasn't taken it yet cuz especially here in the Twin Cities like trying to find somebody to do mm. those classes mm-hmm. is really hard. So that's sort of um an issue we're going to be working on next year as well, but I think it, it is very normalized in rural communities that like, nope, this is part of the process and part of growing up is that you kind of have that that base knowledge uh, if you're going to be using, you know, rifles to hunt. Right. I have a friend, though, who I was uh, she asked, you know, she's around my age and she asked if we would take her hunting this year, knowing we're like a big deer hunting family. And it was kind of the same thing where she asked and I was like. Okay, um, <laughs> I you know I'm gonna have you buy your license, but you're not gonna carry a gun. Mm-hmm. And she was like, mm-hmm. "No, that okay, that makes sense." You know, because I wanted her to learn how mm-hmm. this all works before we've got an extra person carrying a firearm in a group of people. So um, I don't trust you to cast next to me when we're fishing. <laughs> Damn girl. sure I ain't about to <laughs> trust you. Yeah, so what well, my husband know, told me know, was that um, it was during the school day. It was like a regular class that they just had in school. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I wonder if that's something that they offered in the metro. No, 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 no. I mean, no, he's no, in Duluth, no. so he's not like technically like super rural. But No, but that, but compared to the, to Twin Cities. Right. It, it, uh, and back then it was even smaller than, you know, probably yeah. less populated than yeah. it is now. I'll tell you said definite, that back then there was not a lot of Well, people. no, I mean cuz <laughs> you said he was almost my age. He's yeah. he's 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 a decade or so younger than I am. Because in the urban area all we learned was duck and roll. Right? I mean, so yeah. I, I mean, there were no, you know, it was civil defense. We were when I started when I started elementary school, we were under the we were thinking that Russia was going to drop atomic bombs. So we had oh. civil defense drills where we had to hide underneath our desk like that was going to say. Like it was going to do right? anything. <laughs> exactly, right? But no, there was nothing about about gun safety. You know, yeah, that, we didn't that's, have anything uh, either. Anything you know, they age. we didn't have anything like that until you turned 15 and then you started taking Even then we didn't at. even know of anything. I mean, we, I think in, in, my, in elementary school, I took a, a gun casing from my dad's rifle thing to, to show and tell. Because I found it and I was like, this looks interesting. I didn't know what it was. And so then the teacher like, yeah. Oh. No, it was spent. It was empty. It was empty. Just the brass. Yeah. Just the brass. Okay. Yeah. And so I brought it in and then the teacher like pulled me and I think they had to call my parents. And I remember my dad being really mad about it. Like, why would you bring this? And I was like, I didn't know what it was. I thought it would be interesting. You know, we didn't know anything. And we didn't didn't know where to learn anything. Mm. 
Well, and that's just personally, like I now, you know, as a person living in a suburban area who's comfortable with guns and owns guns, I'm always really upfront with other parents too. And mm-hmm. I think that's sort of on all of us as like, whenever my kids go to a new house, like I ask them, do you have mm-hmm. firearms in the house and mm-hmm. how are they stored? And I always offer up that information mm-hmm. when kids are coming over to our house mm-hmm. to like normalize. I mean, that's honestly one of my biggest goals and even carrying the legislation is to open up conversations so we can talk about this. Like my kids know, okay, like <laughs> if you ask them, oh, what do you, it was funny. Actually, my mom asked my nine-year-old, She's going over to a new friend's house. Okay, what are you going to remember when you go to this new friend's house? And my mom's thinking she's going to say, oh, say please and thank you. And she's like, <laughs> if there's a gun, leave immediately and go tell a grown-up. Um, so, <laughs> so, but I mean, that's the, those are the ways we can, I mean, those would, pro- if everybody taught their kids those things, mm-hmm. kids would be safer. Right. You know, and I think, but there, I think there's a difference between those that idea i think it's a great idea but it's something that's never crossed my mind because we didn't have the dnr coming in okay so i took um there was a period i think the second time i was at malax there was a time and you know uh gang issues Mm -hmm. was rearing Mm -hmm. its head heavily throughout the United States on reservations, that and um, opioid drugs that they were bringing in. And they were uh, violent. So there were deaths happening. There were threats. And as a, um, you know, as a community, we were trying to respond to that. And and word, word gets out. So, you know, you begin to hear, people making threats and, 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 and it didn't matter if you were an appointed official elected, you know? And so, so um, for the first time in my life, I bought a handgun, took the required uh, conceal and carry. And through that, they taught me how to properly store that. And I keep a lock. I keep one of those locks on my, I forget what you even call it. A trigger lock. Trigger, the trigger lock. I keep, you know, and so so my my uh handgun is never used it. You know, I mean I I took the concealed carry, never carried it with me. I just for my protection, I felt like I I needed to have so I it would be in the back of my vehicle with the lock on it, so nothing could happen. <laughs> and in the house, it's kept safely with the lock on there. And the only time I've ever shot is when I go to the, to um, the range. To a range, right? And um, and when I think about it again, I think I haven't fired that pistol in like three years. I mean, so you know, but the idea was for my for the protection of myself and family. But I see, but you know what? So what the safety things? But I never thought about you know because I've it's tucked away. It's got the safety lock on there. I've never worried about it, but I've never thought about, hmm, you know, of course, we don't have kids coming to the house anymore, hardly. <laughs> we, we have to deal with it, you know, when we go camping big woods um, and we're not at, you know, local parks where if I, at, at most, I might run into a black bear. I know how to have done it before, mm. know how to deal with it. The black bear didn't want nothing to do with me. I didn't want nothing to do with the black bear. We walked our separate ways. So, um, but when we do big woods, right, I feel compelled to, 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 um, to bring rifles and, um, but rifles, right. And it's very visible. <laughs> it, it, it has all the, all the, it, I don't store it loaded. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's in a particular spot. And, um, you know, 
I've had to stop bringing it just because my kids are uninterested in taking any kind of guns. They don't want anything to do with guns at all. And they're surrounded by a bunch of family who are all trained, took the course. Um, I remember I took the course with some very unsettling folks who were asking questions about how they could use it in ways that I thought hmm. was real unsettling. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> And the instructor was caught off guard. The instructor was like, ah, uh, like it was, it was, it was hilarious. Um, but, but still passed the same, same, I had, I had to, I had to know the same stuff. I had to be ready for, for all those things. And you knew it's drilled in you that you want to never be in a position where you have to use mm-hmm. Um, a gun, so you know, for conceal and carry. And when we took our conceal and carry class, like, I'm like, by the time I was done with the class, I'm like, I don't want to take this nowhere. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, this conversation makes me think that the only time you are required to take anything like that is for conceal and carry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you can buy a rifle, you can buy, right? And mm-hmm. they're, you know, unlike uh, rural areas where you guys had those classes, none of that is offered. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for for responsible gun ownership or, or whatever. So it's you know I, I hadn't even thought to look for DNR for that class. Yeah, right. it wasn't it hadn't even right. come across. That that would be so much easier. <laughs> right. Um, I have a cousin who um, has concealed and carry, and he always brings it with him to family events, and it's always under his T-shirt, you know, on his belt loop. But like he'll go play basketball with the guys and the kids will see it and they're immediately like afraid of this cousin. And so like just them, like I love what you're saying, um, Jamie, about like normalizing it, you know, but at the same time, like he's also a person that probably shouldn't (laughs) have a gun. That, <laughs> that a process that a judge would determine. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the reality is that it's the number one killer of children in America. Mm-hmm. And so we can accept that it is more likely that one of my kids will be harmed by a gun than it is that any of these other terrible things could happen to them. And so I think wow. that's 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 yeah. part of it, too, is wow. we could sort of own up to that and just live with the reality. Right. And part of that is just normalizing the fact that they're going to be there even if we don't want them to be. And so are we prepared and have we had those conversations? Because you just don't know. And to underscore that, I've had uh, two family members and one student of mine uh, be involved in uh, accidental gun discharges that led to the death of, of one, one of them led to the death of his friend. Um, and the other two family members lost their lives as the af- accidental gun death. So like this idea that it's um, far removed from this thing that you were addressing in this legislation, um, I, I can tell you right now, I've been through on that side. And then as a pastor, I have to deal with, um, you know, the effects of those handguns um, in, in, in community. Last year alone, buried three young men who all died because uh, with, with handguns that, were obtained through these channels that you're not trying to, you know, if, mm-hmm. if somebody had been able to raise um, the question or the alarm, we, we would have had some of those, we would have had those kids here. So, I, I mean, I get that all the way. So in, in regards to um, the limitations of no-knock, one of the things that you brought up was is the safety of officers, right? Like officers want to do that. And I, I remember my my um, my father-in-law was a police officer a long time, served on SWAT for, you know, for a while. And it would talk about that. Like, I, I owe my family a coming home. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I'm being asked to put myself into a dangerous situation. And so I, I also see in this space where, in particular, officers of color who um, may never be able to, to give their experience outright because of the the blue code and, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that you're in the field with somebody who you're counting on to back your play. Um, and so I know that that gets tenuous, but mm-hmm. but 
you know, being close to that and being in community where you're connected to the deaths that are as a result of these handguns, right? Um, what you're, what we're asking our officers to do is is also problematic. So I love to hear one of the pieces of the no-knock pieces is taking that into account. That's been huge. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things too when things get so hyper-politicized mm-hmm. is you you don't actually listen to the arguments that are happening. It's mm-hmm. honestly the most, especially as as an attorney, you know, you're you're trained to think logically and argue things logically, and that's not how any legislation gets done. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, it is... I'm glad that you're you're highlighting that because I mean there is more nuance to every mm. single one of these things that we brought forward this year. And it's so hard cuz people hear the talking points, mm. right? And then like talking to you you're like, "Well, there's this exception and there's this exception and it only applies to this and this and you don't see that in the article that's posted." Right? And and then so so then and then the those those talking points get so far removed from the communities at at, at play. Uh we watch this on all sides and we talk about this quite a bit how folks of color have very specific issues that are related to this racialized experience here in the United States and and you'll have a point that gets in there but then it gets taken and tossed around to the point where you're so far you know what's being talked about in the talking points back and forth are so far removed from the communities of themselves that we lose the original mm-hmm. argument and concern mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. then doesn't get addressed and so you have to go back you know thank goodness for local control <laughs> because yeah. The talking points get get further and further away from from actual community concerns. Um, the further out it gets, and the more national it gets. I mean, the talking points are so important to me because I mean, a, a lawmaker went and said, "Oh, right now they're going to come for your guns. Next, they're going to come for the zambonis and your gas stove." And just like as a, a person who has guns and hearing that, that would pro- might, might freak them out. Right. And they'll be like, oh, no, I'm against this legislation because this is the beginning of the government coming and taking all my stuff. But that's not the situation at all. But when you make that soundbite and that's the soundbite that gets picked up, that's what people hear. And that and they don't read the 50 page law. Right. That that is posted online. Everybody can access it, but they don't read it. They hear that soundbite and that's what they take. But I always feel like that is where we absolutely need the press to mm. do their jobs mm. because having people point out that's not true, uh, <laughs> you know, is not. And But now we're at a point where, like, people think they have to both sides it so that – but there isn't actually always both sides when you're talking about a factual – like, that isn't <laughs> right. what's in the legislation. <laughs> but I know even sometimes I get requests from reporters and – I can tell that they've already have a spin on it that's being fed mm. to them by whichever organization or um, other legislators trying to pitch a story to them. Mm-hmm. Where you can tell even by the language that they're using, and so that's, I mean, that's where I think the role of like the media and the press really is incredibly important mm. because, uh, you know, if I have a D after my name and they have an R after their name, and I point out that that's wrong, you're lying. Well, it, then it just looks like, oh, they're just like slinging parties. Yeah. And, yeah. But that is actually where I think a lot about the role of the press in everything mm. and the media. And it is, 
you know, ideally it's their, their duty to find the truth and to ask those questions. And I, I feel like in the world we live in right now, where so much is online and about clicks mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't always go that way, even though ideally that's how it should And work. that's what we're trying to do with this legislative wrap up is like to try to go into details on some of this and, stuff. And it gets placed real close to home. I'm a pastor in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So immediately Mother Emmanuel comes to mind. Um, in Carolina, the church that was rebuilt after um, uh, a militia <laughs> dragged and hung Denmark Vesey for an alleged slave revolt. Um, you know, not talking about the fact that there are white men folks in there and they were organizing to try to oust um, the requirement that a white person be present for every church service. So like there, you know, and then it gets blown up into a slave revolt. And so um, the church that was rebuilt after the church that they were meeting at was burned down is Mother Emmanuel, where Dylan Ruth uh, came and, and, and shot it during, during, during Bible study. Um, and we would get folks in our own community space when legislation like this comes around saying, oh, now you can't protect yourself. Um, mm. This is going to make it easier for another Dylan Roof to come in here. And if, if you just listen to mm -hmm. that language, right, the spin mm -hmm. that, it, that was attempted to be banded around churches, now granted, as pastors and as community members, we've got to go back to what's actually factual and not let people dupe a community into believing mm -hmm. one thing or another without the facts. Um, you know, are in this in this space where the legislation that is designed to prevent Dylan Roof doing what he, what he did is now being flipped to say it's it's going to take away your ability to stop right. a Dylan Roof. So you can see that 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 weird kind yeah, of dual there's space. And there's always that that flip. And I heard this when I was at that gun show too, and asking questions. And people are like, if someone wants a gun, they're gonna get a gun. No matter what, you can make as many laws as you want. If they want a gun, they'll get a gun. And so it's like, okay, so it's hopeless. Like that's and that's how I felt normally. But then that's how I felt. Well, and that about is the that is what they'll say is mm -hmm. they'll, they'll always push back. Well, it's only the criminals, and you're not going to stop the criminals, whatever uh, the criminals. I'm using air quotes. Um, <laughs> but then and then my response is, oh, should we just not have any laws at all? Well, then? come back to them air quotes that you just said, right? Because there is a particular group of folks that is dog whistled in them statements like that. Those criminals, those folks. Absolutely. I have been in so many conversations where I just keep that person talking and eventually the those becomes black folks, indigenous mm -hmm. folks, and a particular mm -hmm. person mm -hmm. who looks mm -hmm. a lot like me when I'm wearing my hoodie and not dressed out when I'm when I'm out and about, right? So there's there is that piece that's still in the mix that I it, that I just need to point out was a very similar dance that was done in the lead up to the Civil War because how else do you convince poor whites in the South who did not typically own slaves to side for and fight for something that was the very thing that was depressing your wages, mm -hmm. right? The very thing that was the roadblock to your, you know, stable living. Um, now I'm supporting. And so these twists end up happening and we keep seeing examples where where black indigenous communities in particular um, are on the other end of this and and have the most visceral impacts in our society. When you see the so the debate around the school resource officers mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. you know, part of that debate is, well, some of these kids <sighs> or, you know, they're clearly they don't because they're not thinking it's their kids. They're thinking right. it's our kids. Right. Um, and they're not seeing those children as children, even though they're students mm. in a school. But the language they'll use around that of why we need to keep everybody safe from these out of control kids, uh, 
<laughs> is the same kind of language and the same kind of messaging around fear. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, this idea that, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot as we've had this debate about Emmett Till and how he was not allowed to be a child mm -hmm. because it benefited what happened um, for those folks to make it into this scary other. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, it's the same sorts of arguments that are happening right now about why we need officers, you know, manhandling, using prone restraints and chokeholds on children in schools. It's like, it, they're not thinking about their kids. Yeah. Right. I was going to, I wasn't sure if I could bring that subject up in this discussion because I, I didn't know, you know, but yeah, and and how media is playing that because unfortunately, I'm sure there have been incidents in many schools since the start of school with fights. But the only one that made it to at least mm. media that I've mm -hmm. seen involved some uh, um, kids of color um, uh, kicking another individual of color in uh, the Mankato schools, mm. and that has been blasted. Mm -hmm on media um not to read not from what i've seen in the in in the uh intent that you get with that um when they showed that was in support of those officers who have not elected to come to schools because of the language and um and i'm going wow you know so it goes back to your intent because as members of communities of color in the in indigenous populations, we know full well how we're portrayed mm -hmm. in media, right? In news, even those who think they're doing a very good job um, often don't come from our communities, so they don't really understand our perspective. So even when they think they're doing a good thing, we can tell that there's, it's eh, not quite there, you know what I mean? So, because this current debate on those SRO um, officers just tickled, just has, I found it very amusing. And finally, some parents and others um, stood up and were actually covered by media for them to say that and to point that very thing out, that they're talking about our kids. Mm -hmm. We don't want our kids in a chokehold. We, mm -hmm. don't, we don't want our kids manhandled and mistreated like that. Uh, there's, there's there's also a two-step that happens here because often the stories, especially the really egregious ones, happen in settings that where where particular groups of kids are. So so and then that gets taken and used mm -hmm. as a representation of happening everywhere or a particular program or something like that. And so you end up or walking. they only show a, sp a specific part of a video that was taken. Mm -hmm. For example, um, the one that happened at the mall where where the the black kid was defending himself because he was attacked by the white kid and the officers jump on him. When it, mm. even though everybody around, including the uh, the white kid, was like, I don't know, I, I started it. That that was me, and 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 there's <laughs> the, the thing is still there because it's it's ingrained, right. and so and so you jump on it in that particular way, um, and and so and and then you it, you miss, and this is one of the things I'm curious about in terms of this the safety legislation, is when we address and put some common sense protocols that actually allows us to spend energy 
on the things that are of actual concern. One of the examples of this is, you know, we'll focus on the fights in the school, but not on the silent and media-based bullying um, in in many cases of, mm-hmm. of white students, of students of color that ridicule. And, and that's a very dangerous thing because the, sexual the suicide rates and the sexual harassment that goes along with that don't get any of the attention because the loudest thing does, mm-hmm. but not the most prevalent and most common experience things. We saw this with the school district where they finally... Uh, discipline the 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 two girls who were telling the the black girl to kill herself, right? And had to and had to have a whole action around that. And it mm-hmm. illuminates this thing that doesn't get uh, attention because the squeaky wheel over here has our and the attention. The excuse is always well, social media is new, and we don't know how to deal with it within our schools yet. That's. But I think one of the hardest things, though, is the 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 things that often will do the most good long term for mm. a community are really hard to put on a mailer when you're trying to get reelected. <laughs> so the reality is that folks will spend a lot of energy on the things that are like wins that they can point to that the voters in the next election will have felt the ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, the the efforts that we're putting around, you know, another piece, big piece of our public safety bill is this kind of reimagining of our correction system. You know, what mm-hmm. does it do to a child to have a parent given uh, an incarcerated parent home sooner, mm-hmm. given the tools to be successful, you know, all those things are going to have ramifications on what happens in our schools and classrooms down mm-hmm. the road. You know, the money we put into housing, into feeding people, all those things have impacts on these specific issues, but it will be so long and so hard to measure <laughs> that it's really hard um, to make that pitch and make that sales, even if we have the data and we have all those things. Again, like it isn't about being right <laughs> all the time in this work. And it can be really frustrating. But I, you know, I am lucky enough that like my district keeps reelecting me. And so it does give me the space to do things like work on better funding for civil legal services and public defenders and things like that that have long-term ramifications, even if it's not the immediate, <laughs> you know, thing that somebody caught on a cell phone and can point to how it would be different. Mm-hmm. See, the thing that gets me, uh, I'd love that you bring the the, the data piece in there because it, it seems so simple. We know from is the dawn of time, human beings have learned that when folks are well-fed, when folks feel safe, and when folks have their needs taken care of, your need to go out and and do a bunch of evils to to, to everybody else is much smaller. I didn't say non-existent. I said much smaller, right? <laughs> and so, um, but we can't seem to put some of those things into place. And it, I keep it keeps coming front and center to me that what communities of color have been saying from the from from those who were displaced and never recompensed from the Japanese internment camps from the indigenous folks who 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 have all of this land and stuff stolen from them in addition to the genocide to all these different communities who have experienced these things that's what we keep asking for mm-hmm. and then we see some legislation that starts to line up with those values get passed and we get excited about it and then we see this constant attempt to try to twist things out of that for you know for out of almost out of our hands when there's finally a little you know incremental move. Yeah, we saw a lot of things pass this season, and a lot a lot of us were really happy about it. But then a lot of people were just like, "Well, you know, it's the Dems, it's the or it's the Republicans, and making it a party issue." You know, and it's like, "What?" Well, but it's about protection. It's protecting my kids. It's protecting your kids, mm-hmm. right? It is not about party issues. They can do that themselves. Where they, in their conversations, where they sit, whatever, what these laws are literally affecting our lives every day. Um, So we appreciate 
you coming on and joining us. And we are excited to hear about, you know, what you're working on. And hopefully when we do the legislative wrap up next year, we'll have you back on. Thank you for joining us. I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer. Anthony Galloway, partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendros Group. And our special guest? Uh, Jamie Becker-Finn. So we're we're recording at Mukwa Coffee, which is a coffee shop that I opened a little over a year ago in my community in Roseville. So we are uh, at 2805 Hamlin Avenue uh, within a neighborhood that's about a mile from where I live. And we're a community-based coffee shop, craft coffee shop, but we also are a safe space in our community for BIPOC folks, for queer folks. Um, and it's really cool to have you all here. This is the first, I think, uh, recording we've done in this space. So it's really neat to have y'all here. And I think that adds to what you're saying that you're lucky that people keep reelecting you is that, you know, my sister did a fundraiser from here, a real fundraiser. And I, when we were like, oh, why are you doing it from a cafe? You know, and she was like, well, this is, cafe is, is beloved. So everybody knows, and that's why we're doing it there. And so, and then, then, then I realized you were the owner after all that happened. Yeah, it is funny to watch people put that together sometimes. <laughs> oh, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, no, I own this place. Like, this is this is the other thing I do with more of my time. And I mean, to bring it all together, the work I do as a legislator, I've had more conversations owning this coffee shop than mm. I did knocking doors in the years previously. I have more connections to young folks, like the folks who hang out here and work for me. Um, you know, the kind of folk, people who don't always have time to write an email to their legislator or attend an event. I see in and out of here mm -hmm. every day. Um, and so that's been another really important piece of all this is it's really just like community building and bringing folks together. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.